Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 9 to verse 19. Verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful um, just to join with your people in singing your praises and in laying our request before you and in hearing from you from your word. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning you would instruct us and you would teach us you would take this gathering of ours and this, this small time that we have together, and Lord, that you would do something here this morning by your Holy Spirit, and that you would transform us by your truth. You would work in us that which is well-pleasing to you, that you would be honored, Father, in how we listen to you and your word and observe your Son and think about your Son. And Father, we just thank you for this time and what you will do with it. And Father, we commit it to you and ask for your help and ask that you'd be honored and glorified. Help us to see the meaning of this amazing story. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. My all-time favorite musical is Fiddler on the Roof. And in Fiddler on the Roof, there's a scene in which Tevye, the main character, is having a conversation with the butcher, Laser Wolf. And the butcher, Laser Wolf, wants to marry Tevye's oldest daughter. And Tevye has five daughters. And so Tevye is talking, or sorry, Laser Wolf is talking to Tevye about marrying his daughter. But Tevye thinks that Laser Wolf wants to buy his new cow. And so here's how the conversation happens. So Laser Wolf is speaking. Tevya, I suppose you know why I wanted to see you. Yes, I do, Laser, but there is no use talking about it. Why not? 
Why, yes. Why should I get rid of her? Well, you have a few more without her. I see. Today you want one. Tomorrow you may want two. <laughs> two? What would I do with two? The same as you do with one. Tevya, this is very important to me. Why is it so important to you? Frankly, because I'm lonely. Lonely? Laser, what are you talking about? How can a little cow keep you company? Little cow? Is that what you call her? What else should I call her? That's what she is. Laser, what are you talking about? Don't you know? Of course I know. It's a wonderful scene, and it's a wonderful musical. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend that you do. Misunderstandings can be funny, can't they? But misunderstandings can also be deadly, right? They're not always funny. How many of you have ever heard of the Charge of the Light Brigade? Anyone heard of the Charge of the Light Brigade? It's one of the most famous moments in British military history, and it was immortalized by the poet Alfred Tennyson, who lived during that time, and after he heard about it, he wrote this poem called The Charge of the Light Brigade. Maybe you've heard of it. Here's a famous part of Tennyson's uh, poem. There's not to make reply. There's, uh, there's not to reason why. There's but to do and die. Maybe you've heard of that. And the Charge of the Light Brigade, it was in 1854 during the Crimean War. There was a battle between the British and the Russians. And the British field marshal, the guy who was in charge of the battle for the British, he could see the whole field from where he was standing. And he gave an order for an infantry group, for an infant, uh, for, excuse me, for a cavalry brigade to charge and capture some guns from the Russians. And his order made a lot of sense. His order was something that on the field was a good idea, and it was perfectly suited for that brigade to do. But there was a misunderstanding, there was miscommunication. So he gave the order for this cavalry group to charge and take the guns. But when the messenger got to the cavalry group, he communicated incorrectly. And we don't know if the field marshal's order was you know, not very clear, or we don't know if the messenger just didn't understand the order, even though it was clear. But what happened was he, the messenger said, the field marshal wants you to charge and take the guns. And the guy in charge of the cavalry group said, which guns? And apparently, according to those who saw it, he basically just swept his hands towards the enemy and said, like, those guns. <laughs> and it was right in front of all his men. And so the, the, the leader of the group basically had no choice but to lead this attack. And so he took his light brigade, his light cavalry, and he charged forward at, toward the front lines with 600 men, and they were completely and utterly surrounded by fire coming from in front of them, from the side of them, from behind them, everywhere. They just ran right into the worst possible situation, and Tennyson captures how they all knew it was ludicrous, but they obeyed their order, and they made that charge, and many of them died. Who's to blame in that situation? We don't know because the messenger himself died in the charge. We don't know exactly why that was, there was a miscommunication, but it was a famous incident. And it's, you know, it's interesting too that even though it was horrendous and it showed how you know, miscommunication on the battlefield can lead to tragic results, 
The Charge of the Light Brigade became the standard of bravery in Britain and in the British military. And it actually led to worse consequences later on because um, that was seen as so, so valiant that warfare after that continued to employ these kind of ludicrous charges because it was so honor, you know, so much full of honor to charge into the face of danger. So think of like the World, World War I. You know, we, we, we think about how they just charge over the trenches into the machine gun fire and we say, why? But at the time there was a sense of honor in just making these charges for your country. Sometimes when there's misunderstandings, no one's to blame. Uh, it just happens. No one wants it to happen. No one means for it to happen, but it does. But other times when misunderstandings happen, it is somebody's fault. And oftentimes, you and I fail to understand something because we didn't take the time to actually invest ourselves in learning what the truth was, right? We were too hasty, too careless, too proud to receive instruction. Um, maybe we didn't want to understand. Maybe we didn't want to see the truth, and so we turned a blind eye to it. And in those cases, when consequences happen because of misunderstandings, we are to blame, and we can't say, I didn't know, right? Because we should have known, and it was our fault that we didn't know. Now, friends, it's one thing to get wrong what the butcher's talking about, right? And it's another thing to get wrong what the field marshal is talking about, but it's another thing altogether to get wrong what God is talking about. And the consequences are more and more severe depending on what you're getting wrong, right? So it's a serious thing to get wrong what God is talking about, and we need to make sure that we aren't those who misunderstand God because of fault in and of ourselves. Now Jesus said many would be shocked on the day of judgment. Amen? He said many would be shocked on the day of judgment they, th they thought that they knew God. They thought that they understood what religion is all about. And they thought they knew Christ. And on that day, Jesus will say, I never knew you. And they'll, and they'll be shocked about that. What? They completely misunderstood everything about God and about Christ and about religion. And they're to blame for it because they should have known and they could have known, but they would not know based upon their own sin. And sinfulness. And I think that what makes an eternity in hell so much worse than just being in hell for all of eternity is the tragedy that you could have not been there. Try to imagine what it would like being in hell and realizing I didn't have to be here. I didn't have to not know. It was my fault because I was too proud or too hasty or too careless to look. And it's an awful thing to think of, such a tragedy like that. So the consequences are severe when we misunderstand God. Now the passage that we've read this morning is a very famous incident in the history of Jesus. It's been called the triumphal entry. And some Christians and some commentators see this as a high point in the ministry of Jesus a high point right before the low point. So they acknowledge, yeah, when he's on the cross and everybody's abandoned Jesus, that's a pretty low point. But right before that low point, there was, a, there was a, an apex. There was a high point. And 
Some Christians and commentators think this is a rare moment in Jesus' life where everyone actually finally does acknowledge him, and this is a very positive thing. What do you think? Is the triumphal entry this positive thing? Like, wow, finally they're getting it. I think that view is mistaken, or at least a gross simplification of the story. Instead, I believe that this incident might better be called the tragically misunderstood entry instead of the triumphal entry, the tragically misunderstood entry. And I think it marks a new low in Jesus' complicated relationship with the people of Israel. It marks a new low. And from the earthly perspective, when you're looking at this story from an outward perspective, just simple earthly perspective, it certainly looks like the triumphal entry, right? It has all the appearances of a triumphal entry, and for that reason, I think we can keep that name or that title for this incident. But I think from a heavenly perspective, when, when God the Father looked at this incident, I don't think he saw a triumph. Because the Jewish people who were lauding Jesus on this occasion were deeply mistaken about Jesus' true identity and his true purpose in coming into Jerusalem. On this occasion, we read in Luke chapter 19, verse 44, on this occasion of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, Jesus says, you have missed the day of your visitation. Isn't that amazing? And so from heaven's perspective, heaven's saying, you've missed it. (laughs) From earthly perspective, You've got it, right? It looks awesome. Everyone's acknowledging him. And so we need to consider this this morning, what's going on from heaven's perspective. So these are the questions we need to ask this morning. What is going on here in in this triumphal entry, so-called? What can we learn about it for today? And that's what I hope to unpack this morning. So I've uh, divided the sermon into three sections which I think are three natural sections for us to look at this passage. Number one, we're going to look at the crowd's excitement about Jesus. Secondly, Jesus' response to the crowd. What did he think about it? What did he do in response? And then we'll just close briefly with the Pharisees' reaction to this incident. And it's important we distinguish between the people in general, and the Pharisees, because they aren't on the same page in this passage, are they? So we've got kind of three different parties here, the people, Jesus, and the Pharisees. So we'll look at them in that order. So first of all, the crowd's excitement about Jesus. Now let's look at verse 17 and 18 again, because verse 17 and 18 explains why the crowds went out to meet Jesus and laud him on his way to Jerusalem. So if you want to understand why this event even happened, we need to understand verse 17 and, and what verse 17 and 18 tells us. The people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign, this resurrection. So in other words, if Jesus had not raised Lazarus from the dead, there would be no triumphal entry. This is directly related to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Who were those who were at the tomb that day? If you remember in chapter 11, it was a group of Jews from Jerusalem, from Judea, who came to help 
mourn with Mary and Martha, right? And they were the ones that were there. It wasn't Galileans. It was Judeans. And this is important to understand. Because Jesus spent most of his ministry, most of his time ministering where? In Galilee or in Judea? Where was he? In Galilee. So Jesus only came to Judea during the feast, the the feast that he was required to go. Most of the time he spent time in Galilee. And he was wildly popular up there in the north in Galilee. But in Judea, in the south, he didn't spend as much time there. People would only hear reports about Jesus. And the Pharisees would tell the people what to think about Jesus down there. And they had the people in their grip. The Pharisees had the people, the Judeans, firmly in their grip. What we see here in this story, however, at this time, is the weakening grip of the Pharisees on the Judeans. So now the Judeans are starting to think for themselves. Now the Judeans are starting to say, hold on a minute, I think there's something going on here with Jesus. He just raised somebody from the dead. And so we see the Pharisees' weakening grip. The raising of Lazarus was so extraordinary, and it was such clear evidence of Jesus' divine power and of his credentials that large groups of Judeans were now convinced that he was the Messiah and were now spreading it around and testifying and stirring up the whole of Judea. When I read Augustine's commentary on this, uh, Augustine has a play on words in Latin, and he commented about what was going on here by saying this, turba turbavit turbam, which means mob set mob in motion. So basically, Jesus is causing this stir, this riot, this mob, and this mob is setting more people in motion, and now just everybody's kind of in a frenzy, not only in Galilee, but in Judea as well. And so look at verse 9 again. Large, the large crowd of Jews, or Judeans, then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So now this is a large group of people who who weren't there when Lazarus was raised, and they want to see Jesus as well. In verse 11, excuse me, verse 12, we see on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, went out to meet him. So even the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem were excited to see Jesus. Everyone was now excited to see Jesus Everyone was now wanting to get close to him and trying to get to him. There was an enormous amount of excitement in Judea, and this was a big deal. It wasn't just Galilee, it was the Judeans. Big deal. Things are now changing in Jesus' favor. And they're believing in him. Verse 11 tells us, you see that? Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away from the Pharisees and were believing in Jesus. So they're believing in him. They're believing he's the Messiah. Now, what do we conclude from this? Do we say, great, everything is turning in Jesus' favor, away from the Pharisees? Unfortunately, John has taught us already in his gospel not to be impressed by numbers. True? John has taught us already in his gospel not to be impressed by 
excitement and zeal for God and even praise for Jesus and even faith in Jesus, not to be impressed by even faith in Jesus, that isn't faith in him with a true understanding. We saw that right away when Jesus cleansed the temple and did miracles on his first visit to Jerusalem. Lots of people were believing in him. And, it's, and John says in chapter 2, Jesus didn't believe in them, right? Or in John chapter 6, after Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, large crowds want to make Jesus king, and he's not impressed by that. So as readers of the Gospel of John, we're already set up to read this with some skepticism. Okay, there's all these crowds, all this excitement, but hold on, do they really understand who Jesus is? They're excited about the miracle, but do they understand what the miracle signifies? They are excited he's the Messiah. Do they understand what Messiah is all about? That's the question. And the reality is, in less than a week, friends, in less than a week, these same people will have been brought back firmly into the hands of the Pharisees in less than a week. So look at verse 10. The Pharisees see what's going on. They say, we're going to need to kill, we're going to need to kill Lazarus too. And you know what? They, they would not need to do that. They're saying, to stop what's going on, we're going to have to kill him. And they never had to. And in fact, the crucifixion of Jesus went better than they could possibly have hoped. Because at the crucifixion of Jesus, the crowds had turned away from Jesus back to them and sided with them against Jesus. So everything went better than they had hoped. And after Jesus was buried, I'm sure the Pharisees thought, Woo, major sigh of relief. We just, you know, averted a total catastrophe. The people were siding with him against us. The Romans were sure to come and destroy us. And after he was buried and the people were back with them, they were probably thinking, good riddance. We're free of him forever. And the nation has been saved just as we planned. One man would die for the people and the whole people would perish not. Of course, on the third day after his burial, Jesus became a bigger problem than ever before. And you know what's interesting? The nation was eventually destroyed 40 years later. And why was the nation destroyed? Why was the people of Israel allowed to be destroyed? Why did God in his providence let the Romans devastate his people and his land? And the reason is because his people turned away from the truth. His people collectively followed the Pharisees and those blind guides in their darkness and they rejected Christ and they rejected the truth. And so 40, day, 40 years after, they were destroyed. So no, they wouldn't need to destroy Lazarus. So the lesson we learn here from their excitement is this, that there can be excitement for Jesus, there can be seeking after Jesus. There can be orientation around Jesus. That means we want to we be with Jesus now. We want to listen to Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. There can even be praising Jesus with great emotion. I'm sure these people were not unemotional. Maybe they were even crying as he was coming into Jerusalem, right? I mean, they're believing that he's the Messiah, so maybe they're filled with joy and filled with peace and filled with even a real hope. Don't you think that they had real hope as they were crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the, in the name of the Lord. See, we shouldn't miss or think that these people didn't have a real faith in him. 
and a real hope in him. But what we learn from this is that you can have all of that and yet have no true understanding of who Jesus truly is and hence no true faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? So let's apply this to the 21st century. Friends, we see in our world many people who are excited about Jesus, right? Many people who have faith in Jesus, real faith in him. You ask them, who do you believe in? Jesus. He's the Messiah, right? And they have real hope in him. They're saying he's the one who's going to save. He's the one who's going to help us. And they can be real emotional about that and have real joy about that and real excitement about that and yet no true understanding and hence no true faith. And if you don't believe in truth, you're on your way to what? Destruction according to the word of God. Serious stuff. So we shouldn't think, oh, you are a true Christian or oh, you really are saved just because someone is excited about Jesus. Because it's not, Christianity is not just getting excited or, Christianity is not even just about believing in Jesus. It is about believing in Jesus in truth. Amen? It's about believing in Jesus in truth. And here's the tragic thing. There are many people who believe in Jesus, not in truth. They're really excited about him. They hope in him. And then they eventually walk away from Jesus. They leave him. They abandon him, just like this crowd does. And then afterwards, they think, you know, I've seen Jesus. I've done Jesus. I know Jesus. I've been there, done that. And it didn't work for me. And I, that, there was nothing there for me. So don't tell me about Jesus because I know. And the, the tragic thing is they don't know, right? And that crowd could have said that about Jesus, right? They could have said, we hailed him as the Messiah. We believed in him. We put our hope in him. And he disappointed us. And eh, don't tell us, you Christians, about him. We know. We've tested him. We've, and they didn't know. And that's the tragedy. So that's an important lesson for us to learn in this story. Now here's what they do. And here's, here we can see what was truly their understanding. What was really going on in their mind. And look at verse 12 and 13, especially verse 13. They come out to meet him when he's riding it, when he's, when he's coming to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 13 that they took branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him. Now, what does it mean that they took the, the palm branches? The historian F.F. F. Bruce says this about the palm branches. And I think this is really illuminating. And I quote from Bruce. From the time of the Maccabees, palms or palm branches had been used as a national symbol. Palm branches figured in the procession which celebrated the rededication of the temple in 164 BC and again when the, when the winning of full political independence was celebrated under Simon in 141 BC. So F.F. F. Bruce is saying, look, a couple hundred years before, uh, if you know the story of the Maccabees, the Jewish people fought and overturned some tyrants who were dominating them and were ruling Israel, and they restored their political independence. At that time, they were waving palm branches. And the palm branches came to be a national or nationalistic symbol. Bruce goes on, later, palms appeared as national symbols on the coins 
struck by the Judean insurgents during the first and second revolts against Rome. So well established was the use of the palm or palm branch as a symbol for the Jewish nation that the Romans in their turn used it on the coins which they struck to celebrate the crushing of the Jewish revolts. On this occasion then, the palm branches may have signified the people's expectation of imminent national liberation. And this is supported by the words which they greeted our Lord. And I believe Bruce is, is actually uh, pointing in the right direction here. It's a clear message what is going on in the people's minds as they're waving palm branches. They're showing their desire and expectation that Jesus, we believe you are the Messiah and we believe you have come to liberate us and to save us and to release us from the Roman rule and to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. And you're coming to do that right now. And what are the words that they use as he's coming in? Hosanna. Hosanna. Which means save now in Hebrew. Save us now or send prosperity. Send us, Jesus, the blessings of the covenant of God that God promised that he would bless us with. So the Jews understand that God promised them blessings. And they're saying, Jesus, come and give that blessing to us and save us and send that prosperity. So that's what's going on here. It's very clear. They're welcoming him as the king of Israel. And they understand the Messiah does this. The Messiah will do this. He will bring us liberation and blessing. You remember after Jesus fed the 5,000, they tried to make him king right there and then. They say, He's, he is the Messiah. Let's put him right now in charge. No more itinerant ministry. Let's, do, let's get down to business and, you know, Messiah, do what you came to do, right? And Jesus walked away from them. But this time he's not walking away. This time he's coming. And so they're excited and they completely misunderstand, right? So what is Jesus' response to their excitement? Well, Jesus knew the true nature of their excitement. He knew what the crowd was thinking. He knew it, wasn't, he, it was not different than that Galilean crowd that wanted to make him king after he fed the 5,000. Jesus' attitude wasn't, finally, they understand, right? <laughs> Jesus' attitude wasn't, this is the greatest. His attitude was not, well, maybe now I won't have to die for them. Jesus does three things in response. And I'll just go through these three things. Number one, he acquires a young donkey, according to verse 14. Now, he doesn't acquire the donkey because he needed it. Jesus was a sturdy man, and he didn't need the donkey to ride up to Jerusalem. And in fact, it was customary for pilgrims on the festivals to walk up to Jerusalem. So by getting the donkey, Jesus was clearly making a statement to the people. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us the details of how he got the donkey, and John doesn't give us any of those details. John assumes we know those details. Those are well-known details. If you want to learn, go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
John is interested simply in the fact that Jesus got a donkey to ride on, not how he got the donkey. It's the that he got a donkey that is the theologically significant thing. And that's what John is, is interested in, right? We've talked about that before. John isn't just trying to give us the historical overview of what happened. He wants to focus in on the theology. What does it all mean? So he tells us Jesus got this young donkey. Now, why did he get the young donkey? Well, one, we might answer he got it to fulfill prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, as it's quoted here in our passage, verse 15. And yes, he certainly got the donkey in order to fulfill prophecy. And verse 16 tells us that the disciples, and remember, they're the ones who got the donkey for him. The disciples didn't even understand at the moment that they were fulfilling prophecy at the time. It was only later that they remembered and said, my goodness, that was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, right? But at the time, they didn't, they didn't see that what they had done for Jesus, getting the donkey and all of that, they didn't see what the significance of it was. But it's more than just Jesus fulfilling prophecy, as if the donkey itself was arbitrary. You know, behold, your king comes riding on a camel. Okay, let's go get a camel. Your king comes riding on a chariot. Okay, let's go get a chariot. Oh, it's a donkey? Okay, let's get a donkey. It's not just to fulfill prophecy, but the fact that he gets a donkey is itself meaningful, has a meaning. And Jesus picks this animal to ride on in order to strongly communicate to the crowds that he is not who they think he is. He is not who they think he is. And so they're all excited, waving the palm branches, saying, here comes the next, here comes the Messiah. You know, here comes the real David who's going to kick you know, the Romans out. Here comes the real Judas Maccabee. Save us. Here comes our conqueror. Here comes the one who's going to establish the rule of God with the rod of iron, as the scriptures prophesy. There he is. And what does he look like? He's coming in on a little donkey. Now, it's true that Old Testament kings in Israel rode on donkeys, but it seems like if you look at all the times they rode on donkeys, it, was always, it always seemed to be in times of peace, not in times of war. Um, you see Old Testament kings riding on chariots in times of war, and I think if Jesus had risen, if he had ridden into Jerusalem on a chariot at that time, the people probably would have just lost their mind and started killing Romans right there on the spot. Because in their mind, they're thinking, this guy can heal the sick, raise the dead, and feed an army. Let's go, right? That's the purpose of his coming, isn't it? That's the purpose of the Messiah's coming, is to bring the covenant blessing, to reverse our fortunes. And Jesus doesn't merely ride in on a donkey, which is a sign of peace, I believe, but a young donkey or a foal, which is unusual, which is very unintimidating. Won't you imagine a man riding on a little baby donkey, okay? His feet probably dragged on the ground. The prophecy of, of Zechariah says he comes riding on a donkey gentle, right? So everything about his appearance now communicates he's the prince of peace and he's gentle. So it's a statement 
against their messianic expectation. I'm not coming to destroy the Romans. In fact, in a few days, the Romans will destroy me. I'm coming for something else. That's the first thing Jesus does in response to them. The second thing he does in response to them is that he acknowledges that the crowds are not completely wrong. So Jesus isn't making a statement, you know, you are just totally wrong about absolutely everything. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the king. I'm not coming to bless you and save you. He's fulfilling prophecy, which says, fear not, daughter of Zion, your king comes to you, bringing salvation, right? So he is by riding in on the donkey, fulfilling prophecy, and he is affirming, yes, I'm your king. You're not totally wrong about that. And I've come to save and bless you. In Luke chapter 19, the Pharisees that are in the crowd, close to Jesus as he's riding, they hear everybody singing, Hosanna to the king of Israel, the son of David, save us now. And the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke them. Like, Jesus, do you hear what they're telling you? They're thinking you're the Messiah and the King of Israel. Stop them. And what does Jesus say? You're right, I should stop them. No, he says, if these stopped crying out, if they became silent, the stones would cry out. Because what they're saying is true. And it was the time to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. It was the time to acknowledge Jesus as their King. It was the time to acknowledge that Jesus had come to save, for in fact, he did. So Jesus wasn't seeing that everything about the situation was wrong, but that's the great tragedy. That, that's where the tragedy lies, that so much of it is right, and yet it's not right because they don't really understand. So he acknowledges that the, not everything is completely wrong. And the third thing that Jesus does is he weeps. Now, this isn't recorded in John, but John assumes that his readers are familiar with the other Gospels. And it's certainly the implied background of John, because like I said, it, if you're reading John thoughtfully, you know by this time that Jesus is not excited about what's going on. And large numbers and large crowds and large excitement isn't what makes Jesus excited. And so there's an implied sorrow going on here as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem, which the other Gospels tell us explicitly. And it's, it's crucial for us to understand the so-called triumphal entry, friends. You cannot understand the triumphal entry unless you understand Jesus' grief and sorrow over what is going on. So I'd like us to turn to Luke chapter 19, and we'll just read what Luke says Jesus did when he rode into Jerusalem here, and how he wept, and why he wept. Luke chapter 19. And verse 41. And this is, the, this is Luke's telling of the triumphal entry. This is immediately after the Pharisees tell Jesus to make everybody stop saying he's the king 
And Jesus actually affirms that he's the king and said, hey, it's the time to acknowledge me as king. So it's a very complex, mom complex moment because on the one hand, he affirms what they're saying. But here's what he does immediately next. Verse 41 of Luke 19. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, so now he's criticizing them of not knowing that very day. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So he's not happy about the situation. And it's an amazing thing because from an earthly perspective, it looks like they all get it. They all see him. They all finally understand. And Jesus is saying, how far you are from understanding. Because you think I'm coming to destroy the Romans. That's what you see. When I look at Jerusalem, Jesus saw the Romans were going to surround it and they were going to destroy you. Why? Because they missed him. They missed him. What did they miss? There are some who think that the problem was, the problem of the Jews, was that they saw the Messiah as a military and political leader. Have you ever heard that? You guys think of the Messiah as a military and political liberator. That's your whole problem. He's not a military and political liberator. Your whole problem is that's what you think this is that's what you think this is all about. And so they think that's why you missed the Messiah. And I can't tell you how many times I've read that in a book. You know, those Jews thinking of their Messiah that way, they completely misunderstood. But I would respond to that, no, that's actually false. Jesus is a military and political leader. What do you think? True? Were they really wrong about that? Jesus is the king. He's not simply the lamb or the prophet. And the Bible tells us that Jesus will rule, that is, he will have a political reign, and Jesus will, according to Paul and many other people in the Bible, come one day in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel, and give rest to his people. So I submit to you this morning that the problem with the Jewish thinking here is not that they think Jesus is a, is a military political figure, the Messiah is a military and political figure. The whole problem that's going on here, the essence of the problem is that they think 
that he's coming to deliver them and to save them and to overthrow the Romans right then and there. And that they don't need the blood of the Messiah to provide them forgiveness of sins and righteousness because they think we are righteous. We are obedient. We are doing everything we're supposed to be doing. And because of that, it's time for the Messiah to come according to prophecy and save us and liberate us and to, prov to provide for us the promised covenantal blessings. The things that make for peace. They didn't understand what was required in order for them to have peace and shalom and for God's promises to be brought in. They were hidden from their eyes. Now that reminds me of Isaiah 53 verse 1 where it says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? So the people of Israel at this time were ignorant of their need for the death of Christ. And they wanted the blessing on account of their own righteousness and they didn't realize they had no righteousness and they could not be righteous before God and satisfy his requirements for blessing by obedience to the law. They didn't know that that couldn't happen. They were misunderstanding. They were ignorant. And who, who is at fault for that? Is this just one of those misunderstandings? You know, that, you know, misunderstandings just happen. It's nobody's fault, right? You just didn't understand the need for the death of the Messiah and the need for perfect righteousness. You just, no one's to blame. Or were they to blame? Well, according to Scripture, they were to blame because they didn't listen. When Jesus taught them that no one is righteous, not even their Pharisees and their, their leaders, right? And I've said this many times, but Jesus is the light of the world. He came to reveal the truth. He taught about God and about his standards and about his righteousness. And Jesus made it very clear, no one is good, everyone is evil. Because God requires a righteousness greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, a perfect righteousness. A righteousness that accords with the law as it actually, as it actually requires in the law to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And God isn't joking about that. That's what God in his purity sees as purity and as goodness. And Jesus clearly taught no one has that. Everyone's perishing. For that reason, God loved the world so much he sent his son into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus taught this. They didn't listen when he taught that he's the bread of life that came into the world to give his life for the life of the world, to give his flesh for the life of the world. And you need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life in you. They didn't believe. They didn't listen. It didn't agree with them. They turned a blind eye to it. They were hasty. They were proud, too proud to receive the instruction. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the purpose of Jesus' first coming. It was to establish for us the things that make for peace. God could not bring us, Israel, you or me. He could not bless you. He could not save you. He could not deliver you unless your sin issue had been first dealt with and you had received righteousness because that's what God requires. And so the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins and we are amazed at the love of Christ in doing that.
We're amazed at the love of God for doing that because who did he die for? Did he die for only the people who understood what he was doing? No. He even died for these people, these crowds who didn't understand, who didn't listen, who were being proud and stupid and hasty, who would even betray him and go back to the Pharisees in about six days. It was the worst of the worst that Jesus died for, and we're amazed that he'd do that. And it's his sacrifice on the cross that provides for us the purity that we need before God and that enables God to bless us. And the amazing thing about the gospel is it isn't based upon whether we earn it or whether we're good enough or whether we keep commandments. It's simply by believing and trusting in what Jesus has done for us that we receive peace with God and we have hope. It's just through faith. And at Jesus' second coming, the Bible teaches us that Jesus will come and deliver us from the tyranny of death and the tyranny of Satan and the tyranny of this age and deliver us from all of, our, all of the curse that we still experience and establish for us that blessing that we long for and look for. And it will be true of all those and for all those who have believed in him. Unfortunately, those who don't believe in him on that day will be shocked to find out that Jesus does not know them. So this was Jesus' response. He challenged their misunderstanding. He challenged their messianic expectation. He acknowledged that they weren't totally wrong about everything, but he wept for them because he saw that in their misunderstanding they missed the things that made for their peace and they didn't understand the truth about God and they were going to be destroyed. The question that we all need to ask ourselves is not do I believe in Jesus, but do I believe in him in truth? Do I understand who he is? Not what is the measure of my excitement for Jesus, but do I know who he is? Do I understand why he came into the world? Do I understand that he had to come and die for my sins so that God could bless me and save me? Otherwise, there's no hope for me. Am I trusting in him solely and completely? Or am I trying to establish my own righteousness? Am I zealous for God without the knowledge of his righteousness? That's the question to ask ourselves. And finally, in closing, I'd like to just briefly talk about the reaction of the Pharisees in verse um, 19. If you'd turn back there in John chapter 12, verse 19. And this is such an interesting verse. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. First of all, notice how they blame each other, right? They're telling each other, you're not doing any good. So self-righteousness is just oozing out of these guys. It just shows their character. I'm not at fault, you're at fault. But there's also layers of irony in this statement multiple layers of irony. First of all, they're worried about what they see, right? They're worried that all these people, the Judeans, the nation is going after Jesus. They're worried that, oh no, we're losing this battle. The nation's going after Jesus. That means we're going to be destroyed as a nation. But the irony is, is that they actually didn't need to worry for that reason, right? Right? because the nation 
would soon abandon Jesus and return to them. What they should have worried about is that the nation wasn't really going after Jesus. What they should have worried about is that if we as a nation don't believe in him in truth, we are going to be destroyed. And so they just completely didn't understand. So their worry is ironic here. That's one layer. They were worrying about the wrong thing. But here's another layer of irony. When the Pharisees look at what's happening and they say, the world is going after him. When they say the world, they're exaggerating. They simply mean like everyone in Israel, the nation of Israel is going after Jesus and we're losing. But I think like Caiaphas in chapter 11, they are speaking a prophecy. They are saying something better than they really understand. And the truth is, that Jesus came to save the world. And that very soon, the truth of God would break beyond just the nation of Israel and go out into all the world. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would go after Jesus and would go after him in truth. And that's actually what the next section is about in John chapter 12. Look at the next verse, 20. The Greeks who had come to worship say, we want to see Jesus. So the world, in a sense, is going after Jesus. Now non-Jews are even going after Jesus and will continue to go after Jesus and to this day are going after Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 32 of chapter 12 that when he is lifted up, he will draw all to himself. And so in a sense, they're, they're, they're actually speaking accurately The world is going after him, and little do they realize how true that's going to be in just a few months' time. So in closing this morning, there are different degrees of severity when it comes to misunderstandings. It's one thing to misunderstand what your friend's talking about. It's a serious thing to misunderstand the general on a battlefield, but it's the most severe thing of all to misunderstand God and to misunderstand the truth, to misunderstand Jesus, and to be tragically deceived, thinking, I know God, I know religion, I know Christ, I believe in him. I am zealous for him, and to not know and understand God's righteousness and how we become righteous through faith. To miss the things that make for peace. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, It's a time for us to remember the crucifixion of Jesus, what he actually came to Jerusalem to do that week, to be the Passover lamb. He came to bring you peace. I'd like to remind you of that this morning and encourage you to just meditate on that and remember that. He came to bring you peace with God. And he came to bring you peace with God by laying his life down as a substitutionary sacrifice. So as you take that bread, remember his incarnation. He came into the world for his body to be broken for you. And when you take that blood, remember this morning once again, he shed his blood to establish the new covenant so that we could have peace with God. And when he comes that second time, for Paul says, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. And we long for his coming. And when he comes... As believers, what a glorious, glorious day that will be. And his entry on that day for us believers will truly be triumphal.
Please stand with me as we pray. Father, I think of that verse that says you desire truth in the inward parts. And I just thank you for this reminder this morning that it's not the crowds you're interested in or you're excited about, Lord. It's, it's knowing you. So, Lord, I ask that as we take communion this morning and as we meditate on what you have done for us, May we remember who you are and what you've done for us. May we rejoice in the peace that we have with you through the blood of your Son that we could not have any other way. And we look forward to your coming, Lord. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come in triumph. And establish your rule. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of your salvation through faith alone in your Son. We give you praise and thanks. And there's no words and no songs we could sing, Lord, that truly gives you what you deserve. You are worthy for all of eternity to have our praises. In Jesus' name, amen.